Number 9. Psalms, First Quarter, 2024. Daniel Duda. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. We're starting Lesson 9. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord in the quarter on the book of Psalms. Dr. Daniel Duda is our moderator, and our opening prayer will be by Bill Church. Good morning. Loving Father, we thank you for this Sabbath day. We thank you for the opportunity that we can all gather together remotely as it is and share our understanding of how you've impressed us over our years that we've spent with you. We thank you for this opportunity to look more deeply into the book of Psalms. We pray that the Holy Spirit will guide each of us as we learn together. We pray that you will guide Daniel as he leads out in this study today. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Thank you, Bill. And everybody, welcome to lesson number nine. And lesson number nine, the title is Blessed is He Who Comes in the Name of the Lord. And the whole lesson, if you look under number one, looks at the different aspects of Christ's work and of the plan of salvation in the book of Psalms. As we mentioned in the introduction to the previous lesson, Psalms are not history. Psalms are not prophecy, and they are not promises. They are just poetry, inspired poetry that a writer expresses his experiences. Sorry, in that situation is his. I am not sure that we have a female author of a psalm, but uh, we have other books which are named by females, etc. But this was the cultural reality of that time. Now, that does not mean that psalms cannot have prophetic aspects in them. But it needs to be very clear that David is describing his own experience. It's not that David sits one day and says, oh, I need to write a psalm that the Messiah can use one day to describe his experience. So let me write a psalm so that he has something to quote. No, David describes his own experience and Christ will later find it meaningful. And not only him, but other people as you and I can. Because that's the purpose of this inspired poetry, that other people can identify with that and see that describing that they go through a similar situation in their own life. All right. The lesson for Sunday starts with Psalm 23. So let's start this way. If you look under number two, what major images do we find in the Psalms that describe God? So if the psalmist, if the author in the Old Testament wants to speak about God, which images are they going to use to describe who God is for them? So what comes to your mind? Elisa? Jesus as the shepherd. So how many times do you find that in the psalms? Beats me, Daniel, because I've never done a count on that. But I know in one of the most famous psalms, it's a very prominent image that emerges, I think. Okay, thank you. So it's prominent, and we'll talk about that. But you have another image. We are sheep of his pasture that we read in the previous lesson. Michael Bell. Yeah, or the psalm that says, be quiet and know that I am God. In other words, stop your self-centeredness and start thinking about me. Because that's the way I understand it. Okay. So that would be Psalm 46, be still and know that I am Lord. Any other things that occur more than once periodically in Psalms? Yes, Alisa? 
you know, the fact that he's a fortress, a high tower, a refuge, a place that we can go to and seek protection and comfort. So that would be definitely more than the shepherd. Mm -hmm. So the fortress and the high rock and the tower. Mm -hmm. So something where I can uh, escape when the whole world is against me. And when everybody's after me, then I can uh, run there. It's very often found in the Psalms. And of course, you know, the famous song of Martin Luther, based on Psalm 46 that Michael Bell quoted, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble, the mighty fortress. And when the whole world is against you, as Luther feels in the 16th century, the whole world is against him and the most powerful people are against him, you certainly find comfort in that. Shield is used very often. And shield is because it's part of the armor of the ancient soldier. So in the days when you had no rocket, the high rock and the fortress would be a safe place because they did not have ballistic missiles or drones. So that's where you could escape. Shield was something that you dealt with the arrows and protected you from the arrows. So high tower, fortress, high place, refuge, rock. Remember how David got his capital? He came to the city that no one could take because it was on a high rock, but there was a shaft through which the water was coming. And so he instructed his soldiers to go through the shaft and get into the city. But this high rock, inaccessible, stronghold would be another one. Horn of salvation, Elisa. Yes, Daniel, that's one I wanted to ask you about, horn of salvation. Does that mean that at a critical time, somebody would blow the horn and then people would say, you need to come inside and we can close the gates? I don't know. I'm asking what horn of salvation. And horn is a symbol of strength. So when you see Michelangelo's David, he has two horns, which is just a poetic way. Sculpture is also art. Okay. It's an artistic way of saying, here is a powerful man. Okay, thank you. So a little horn in prophecies will be somebody or a power that is more powerful than its original appearance suggests. Of course, oil was also stored in horns. And so when Samuel was anointing David, he used this horn to pour oil on him. But it's a very Old Testament symbol of power, of strength, which would be not understandable in our culture, in a different cultural reality. Now, here's the important thing that if you look at these images, they convey the reality. They, meaning the enemies, are after you. You need to hide. You need to get at the top of the mountain. You need to get yourself into a fort so that you are okay, you are safe. And it's an important language, and surely in the lives of everybody, there are moments and situations when you feel that this expresses what I go through in life. But have you noticed that when the New Testament writers reflect on who God is, somehow instinctively they understood that this language can create a certain sense of paranoia. It doesn't have to, but easily can. Everybody's against me. The whole world is against us. And remember, Christ was very strong on not creating the mentality, us versus them. And so 
they don't use the metaphors which are the most common in the Psalms for God. But there is another metaphor which they use for God, and that was the one that Elisa mentioned, and it's the metaphor of shepherd. But I want you to notice that sometimes in exegesis it's very important to pay attention to a minority point of view. They don't use the majority of pictures that you find in most of the Psalms because they realize after the revelation that comes through Christ that those can be easily misunderstood. And so they use the picture of good shepherd. And that's what they apply to who God is. And of course, the irony of that picture is that if you kill the shepherd, sheep have this drive to self-destroy. They cannot survive without the shepherd. And the New Testament is going to present the picture that actually the death of the shepherd is the greatest blessing for the sheep because it brings life, not death, to them. Bob Ziprick? When Paul speaks of the full armor of God, is that used in a little different sense? Yes, and remember in the previous quarter we had a chapter on Ephesians 6, and the key word there that's repeated is to stand, so that you can stand, so that you can withstand, etc. So it's not about fighting, it's about you are protected. But there are three models, three metaphors that are used in the New Testament for God. Good shepherd, a woman, and a father. In Psalm 23, God is a good shepherd. In Psalm 131, my soul is quieted like a child at its mother's breast. Reinforced in Isaiah 66, where it says about God as the one whom his mother comforts so I, God, will comfort you as a mother comforts a child. And then you have the Psalm 103, verse 13, as a father has compassion for his children, so the Lord has compassion for those who fear him. A good shepherd, a good woman, and a good father. And when Jesus is challenged, why are you a friend of sinners? Why are you so nice to everybody? Jesus tells three stories in Luke 15. And the first one is about the good shepherd. The second one is about a good woman. And the third one is about a good father. And so it's very important that Jesus picks up a minority point of view to get across the message, which is very important, to see who God is. And very often when we come to the Bible, just because the sheer number of texts is used and was meaningful to people at a certain point of time, it does not mean that it represents the majority view, represents God's ideal, God's perspective. No, this was what people found most meaningful to them at that time. And where else can you see that more beautifully than in the book of Psalms, in a collection of poetry? that describes the experiences of these people. All right, let's go to Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. 
He restores my soul. He leads me in right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord my whole life long. Okay, thank you. So you all know that song very well. One of the first days when I was six years old at school in a communist Czechoslovakia, the teacher asked children, children, who can recite a poem? And being a sanguine, I raised my hand and said, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. And I recited Psalm 23. Now the teacher immediately called my mom to school and said to her, if you teach him these things, he will get into trouble. And so I was told by my parents that I need to distinguish between what I say at home or in the church, where I would get a commendation as a six-year-old that I could recite Psalm 23. And I cannot do that in a communist country in a public school. So that was my first experience with Psalm 23. Now, do you all know about Psalm 22 and the sorrows that it describes? We'll look at it in the next section. But interestingly enough, the lesson takes first Psalm 23 and then Psalm 22. So after the sorrows of the Psalm 22, we get a calm vision of Psalm 23 and then the shouts of praise in Psalm 24. So what is significant about Psalm 23 regarding looking backwards from the perspective of Christ? Remember, when Jesus walks with the disciples on the road to Emmaus and they ask, you are the only one who doesn't watch the news? You don't know what happened in Jerusalem this weekend? He says, oh, really? Tell me more. So they tell him about this Jesus, whom we thought is a powerful man of God, but then the enemies took him and they killed him, and that's the end. And we have hoped that he is going to save Israel. And interestingly enough, instead of giving them a lesson in pastoral care, Jesus says, don't you realize what the storyline is all about? And starting with Moses, through the Psalms and the prophets, he explained to them, how these things were mentioned so that the whole picture of who God is and what he's going to accomplish can create one monolithic picture. And so Jesus used things from Moses, from Psalms and the prophets to show how these things speak about him. So when you look at Psalm 23, what do you see there that can be related to Jesus and who Jesus is? Elisa? I'm not sure that I'm going to answer directly your question, and maybe I end up posing another question. But I have attended a couple of memorials recently of people who passed away and from families who are not Seventh-day Adventists. They were Christian, but not Seventh-day Adventists. And without fail, this psalm was quoted, Psalm 23. And I bet if we were to go around and take a poll at all of these various memorials, we'll find that it wasn't just those two that I attended that had that psalm or used that psalm in some way, but there are many others. So 
I think Psalm 23 is a very brilliant psalm. And somehow it has this universal appeal, just like the story of the prodigal son does in the New Testament. It has a universal appeal that impacts and touches the person's heart and mind. And I just think if I had to pick one psalm out of the whole book of psalms, this would be it. And the reason why you would pick it up is what speaks to you the strongest? Well, I think one of the things that speaks to me is that it's the promise of hope, the promise of dwelling in the house of the Lord forever. But all along, if you look at it, you see how God is preparing to protect us, to save us, and then to have us dwell in his house forever. And who wouldn't want that? Yeah, sure. Thank you. Michael? The opening line, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Jesus said he was the good shepherd. And I know my sheep and they know me. And so I think the two are related. Jesus is the good shepherd and he's the good shepherd of the 23rd Psalm. Okay, thank you. Bob? There's a difference between, I think, the King James and the version that Terry read in that what I'm used to hearing is forever, which would apply to me eternity. The version that Terry read said for the rest of my life here, it sounded like. And I'm kind of curious, if you go back to the ancient language, does it refer to just this life or does it actually imply eternal life? And I was just curious because I wasn't sure if that came through in this time in Israel where they were talking about eternity, or it was just intended for here. So the Hebrew says, for length of days. And that's why the New Revised Standard Version translates, my whole life long. Now, of course, there are other places in the Old Testament that explain the length of days beyond this life. As you mentioned, probably, given the Christian and the New Testament perspective, we read more into it than a typical Old Testament person would read into it. In that collective society, the survival of the tribe is the most important. In the previous lesson, we read about the children and the children's children, that they survive and that they are blessed. That's the most important thing. This individualistic aspect and what happens to me, 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 it's a very recent development. It was not part of that society. Although you have in Job that I know that my Redeemer lives and he will be the one who will be above my dust. But it's once again a minority voice in the Old Testament. Rita? In the context of looking back at this from the perspective of Jesus, I'm thinking that what this is saying or what this is saying to me is that Jesus has shown us a new perspective on God, the true perspective of God as the shepherd. And that's what this psalm is saying. This is a picture of God that we don't have to be afraid of. This is God real. Because I think we have so often the picture of this sort of fierce God. And if we step out of line in God's presence, we're not in a safe place. But here the psalmist is saying in God's presence, you are in a safe place. And that's what Jesus was trying to teach us, that in God, you are in a safe place. You don't have to be afraid of him. Very much so. And Karen? We see the shepherd is with us through everything, with his sheep, through the pastures and the pathways and the valley of the shadow of death. And he is doing all the action in this psalm. He's doing everything, all the caring, all the blessing. 
all the comforting, all the celebrating. So he's actively and intimately caring for every detail of his people's lives. Yes. So we are going to read the Psalms where God is portrayed as a powerful king, even to the extent that we who live in modern democracy have a hard time to identify with that. But that's only one image in the majority voice in the Old Testament. And when Jesus comes and he wants to present who God is, he picks on these minority voices. God is like a good shepherd, good woman, and a good father to portray another aspect of God's character. Although in minority in the Old Testament is crucially important for our understanding of who God is and to avoid the misunderstanding and the abuse that some other models can easily bring. And so this is an important aspect that the tribes have their kings. Even if you look at Psalm 2, which is an inauguration psalm, you would not know it from reading it, but this is the psalm which is part of the inaugural ceremony that the new king reads as a part of liturgy when he is inaugurated as the new king of Israel. Why do the nations conspire and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. Now when the old king has died, now is in a perfect opportunity to get away from their influence, not to pay the taxes. Now is an opportunity to get away under the dominion of this king, of this rulership. But the Lord who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord has them in derision. And he says, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Here is the next king. He is the future king. He's there. And then from verse 7, it speaks in the first person. The new king says this as a part of the liturgy. I will tell of the degree of the Lord. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And that's very crucial for understanding the New Testament texts, which speak about Jesus being the begotten son. With plain reading, you are going to misunderstand that and say, you see, God can even pinpoint a day when Jesus was begotten. So he has a beginning in time. Now you understand if the new king says as a part of inaugural liturgy, of part of being introduced on the throne, God said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Obviously, he's not begotten on that day, otherwise he would not be able to speak. And remember, Psalms are poetry. They speak about literal things in a poetic way. And by taking it literally, you destroy the poetry. So today, when you become the representative of my people, Israel, you and I enter into a special relationship. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and to the ends of the earth your possession. Therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Now, interestingly, you don't quote this next text very often. Serve the Lord with fear. Usually you hear with joy and gladness, but not with fear. But that's what it says in Psalm. Or he will be angry, and you will perish on the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Usually we quote the text that he's long-suffering and slow to anger. But here it says that you need to treat the king of heaven properly because he's so powerful and his wrath is quickly kindred. And that's why you serve him with fear and trembling and kiss his feet. Now, what kind of picture of God do you get from this? Now, you need to understand that in 1000 BC, if people are going to represent God and respect him and give him what is due, 
this is the picture you need to portray. But the New Testament is not going to pick on this majority voice. It's going to pick on the fact that after Saul, David, who is the youngest son, and remember, his older brothers, when they see him, when he came to the battle, instead of saying, wow, isn't that amazing that our youngest brother is here, at least he will learn a little bit how the war is conducted. They are very harsh on him. Why are you here? This is not for you. Oh, we know. You are irresponsible. You left the sheep, etc. They who are supposed to be his models, role models and protectors, they are the harshest to him. And so he has this difficult experience. He's not even called when Samuel comes and says to his father, I have come to annoy the future king of Israel to your house. They don't even call him to the occasion. And so it happens that David, as the youngest, goes through this experience of being a shepherd. And then he retells the story to Saul, how the lion and the wolf came and how he had to protect the sheep barehanded with his strength and with his rod, etc. And once he's anointed, the experience, instead of bringing him the privilege and the position, brings him trouble and suffering. And for the next 20 years, he will be running, no family life, strange friends soldiers that are his protection and from this position of a suffering servant a new image is going to emerge in Isaiah and in this Psalm 23 giving a different perspective on who God is the Lord is my shepherd I shall not want he leads me beside still waters he restores my soul he leads me in right paths for his name's sake not because of who I am and what I do Chris So in Psalm 2, verse 11, serve the Lord with fear, tremble, and bow down to him, or else his anger will be quickly aroused, and you will suddenly die. Happy are all who go to him for protection. But then in the New Testament, it says, perfect love casts out all fear. So now I'm in a quandary, right? I have Psalm saying, I should serve him with fear. New Testament saying, are you kidding me? If you're fearful, then that probably means that you're doing something wrong. Perfect love cast out all fear, right? So this goes back to that whole concept of you can't just read this by itself. But I would say your question of what does this picture of God look like on there? I would say pagan. But at the time, it could be how somebody interpreted that. And that could be what people needed to hear at the time. But to say that this is the ideal model that Jesus wants us to have, absolutely not. That would be more of a God's angry, so let me give him a basket of fruit. And so if I can just give God the basket of fruit, maybe he'll accept me type of thing. So that I would say that that's why you can't just read it by itself. You have to read in the whole context of scripture. That's right. So Psalm 2 is inaugural Psalm, which is recited as a part of inauguration of the new king in Israel. Now, if he was addressing the king of England or the king of Russia, he would have to speak in English or Russian for those kings to understand. And so if he speaks to pagan kings, What kind of model of religion is he going to use so that they can understand? A pagan model. So the king of Lebanon, who says, why should I supply my cedar to you? Now is the time to get out of your influence. When the old king died, what kind of language is going to be used so that he respects this king and says, oh, actually, I need to take this seriously. Now, remember what they do. I am going to give you my daughter as a wife for your son. So that when you guys fight against us, you are not going to kill us because we have common grandchildren. 
So this is how they think and this is how they operate. So don't be surprised that when God is addressing pagan kings, that he uses pagan models of religion because he needs to stoop down to their level and work on their level of understanding. Now, the problem is, if you take the majority voice of the Old Testament addressed to pagan kings and you apply it to Christian God and you say, this is an interpretation, an explanation how we in Christian era should understand God. Now, you are excused if that's how you understand in medieval times, but after French Revolution, after Reformation, etc., etc., that's why the minority voice, we need to pay attention to that because God is going to choose and point out the danger of abuse in these models that reflect the prevailing culture of the society of the day. Livius? It's helpful for me, at least, to really meditate on this metaphor, especially in the beginning here, the Lord is my shepherd. And David making a declarative here as king. He is a king, but he's saying, hey, I'm just a sheep, right? And so that's an interesting perspective on how he proceeds to write this poem. But all sheep, the kind of sheep that is being talked about here, they don't exist without a shepherd. All these sheep need a shepherd. Even scripture says we are all like sheep who have gone astray. And so the interesting question is, everyone's got a shepherd. Who is our shepherd? Who is your shepherd? Who is my shepherd? And David seems to know, like he's asking, he knows God, his character, and he wants God to be his shepherd, to lead him in the pastures and the waters and the streams. And so it's interesting, this idea of being a sheep and what you need as a sheep from a shepherd that is really needs more meditation and more understanding. Yes, thank you, Lewis. So David here says, God does for me what I do for my sheep, but he does it even better than I could ever do. And this difficult experience in life helped him to see and be sensitive to how you treat other people. When he receives this harsh treatment from his own brothers, they are the ones who are supposed to believe in him and protect him and lift him up. No, they don't do it. Then he sees that, and actually God is doing this to me. Just as I do it to that sheep, God does it to me. As Karen said, he's caring and blessing and comforting, and he provides something that I cannot find elsewhere. Tim Pachet. Daniel, I'm just asking for a little perspective. What's your understanding in the larger Adventist church and the larger Christian church as to how people understand that God meets us where we are and, and uses a language we can understand? Do people read the Psalms from that vantage point? Or is this a fairly unique perspective? Some do, some don't. Livius already quoted the Psalm 23 from the perspective of a shepherd. So here's someone who was a shepherd in the Middle East, and he gives most valuable perspectives that those living in London or New York don't have because they never seen a shepherd in their life. So, And Jesus will pick up on this language and say, I am the good shepherd vis-a-vis -vis the blind man to whom religious leaders excommunicate him and they don't have any compassion with him and say, we don't like your theology, probably we're not even blind just because you say things that we don't enjoy. And they cast him out of the synagogue. Jesus comes and comforts him and he functions as a good shepherd for him. And in that context, he says, my sheep hear my voice and recognize. And so you can read there how you have this 1,000 sheep drinking all together 
And when that is finished, each shepherd just starts singing the song, whistling, but it, it's a tune. And 1,000 separate into five flocks, <laughs> or how many? And every sheep follows their own shepherd. And they go, you as a Westerner would think, oh, no one can sort these sheep out. No, it's very simple. Because part of that training, and he will explain in the book, is that when the sheep joins the flock, it's confused and needs to learn to recognize the voice of the shepherd and the gentleness that the shepherd needs to have with the confused sheep. It's very, very helpful perspective. Michael? Two of my kids, my daughter and my sons, were part of 4-H, which is similar to Future Farmers of America, except that in Future Farmers of America, the animals that they're raising are usually on a farm. These were in a, a separate facility, and they raise sheep. And believe me, they are the dumbest animals on the earth. Well, the dumbest mammals, I'll put it to you that way. If the sheep gets lost, they won't try to find the flock. They'll stand in the middle of nowhere and just keep crying out, ba, 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 come get me. And for example, if there's a fence separating the sheep from food and water, the sheep will starve to death. You do that to a cow, the cow just knocked the fence down. And the idea that the sheep know me and I know my sheep. They know my voice. That's in fact true. That's the way they operate. They won't drink if the water is flowing. They will only drink from the stationary water. Yeah. Those who know sheep, I am a guy from the block of apartments from a town. So, <laughs> but reading these books, yeah, not only they are the dumbest animals, but they do anything to self-destruct. They say that if they don't have someone who brings wisdom to their life, they, they are going to die. They are going to do something foolish to, to get killed or to die. But it's very interesting that the New Testament will pick up on this image uh, rather than other images from the Psalms that emphasize the strength and the power, but that can easily be abused. I was wondering if the fact that Jesus came as a baby was one of the ways he was trying to emphasize the difference between the majority view and the minority view of who he was. One other way of confronting what they thought he was going to be like, the vulnerability of coming as a baby. And not only as a baby, but as a poor baby. Mm -hmm. So the parents can't even offer the usual offering. Within a few weeks of his birth, they have to run away to Egypt. So they become refugees in the culture of not of their own. And to make a living there in Egypt is not easy. And when they come back after Herod died, again, they need to be in a place which is not the best neighborhood. And so Jesus is exposed to these influences and environments that make him very sensitive to all this abuse, the circumstances of his birth, how his mother is treated, even after the death of Joseph, people still refer to him as son of Mary in Mark 6, which in that patriarchal society is a very vulgar, unusual way of referring to the man, not as a son of his father, but the son of the mother. So all these things shape Jesus and his sensitivity, just as David, being the youngest of these seven boys, being a shepherd, and then for many years being a fugitive, give him a new understanding of what kingdom is all about. It's not a position of privilege. Yeah, he will make sure he will get his privileges, as we mentioned, 
with his harem and his soldiers, etc. You will get that, but that is not what shapes primarily. It's this understanding of a suffering servant. So he had these eight wives. All right. But this self-sacrificing nature of the shepherd is what New Testament picks up rather than the mighty and powerful king who can do anything and no one can withstand him. Now, it's an important aspect. Yes, he's infinitely powerful, yet he's the one who is willing to comfort and sacrifice us. All right, let's go to Psalm 22, Terry, verses 1 to 8. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you, our ancestors trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you, they cried and were saved. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not human, scorned by others and despised by the people. All who see me mock at me. They make mouths at me. They shake their heads. Commit your cause to the Lord. Let him deliver. Let him rescue the one in whom he delights. So can you see this man who is anointed about 15 years old? And for the next 15 years, he's going to become a fugitive. He never knows where he will wake up in the next morning, where he's going to be killed, what kind of surprise he can expect from Saul and his soldiers who are hunting him everywhere. He needs to live outside of the promised land, of the borders of the promised land. He needs to pretend he's a fool. He needs to make friends with Philistines. Can you see how he gets into the state of mind that one day he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Can you hear Jeremiah who says, when you have talked to me and I agreed that I will be your prophet, your special vessel, we had some semantic misunderstanding. I imagine that will entail something else. And when he says, when you anointed me to be the king, I thought this will be something else. That in those 15 years, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? Why don't you hear the words of my groaning? I cry day by day by night. You do not answer. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. I can count all my bones. My enemies stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among themselves. For my clothing, they cast lots. And can you see the psalm of reorientation? Verse 19. But you, O Lord, do not be far away. O oh, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. From the horns of the wild oxen you have rescued me. I will tell of your name to my brothers and sisters. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, Glorify him. Stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he did not despise or abhor the affliction of the afflicted. He did not hide his face from me. Okay, and 27 to 28. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Okay. 
Can you see how Psalm 22, if you look at number four, is protecting us from reading Psalm 2 as over triumphalist? Can you see how it helps us to read Psalms in the larger context of all ordinary kings and what they have to face? How they realize the challenge of their own inadequacy. The suffering that David goes through helps him to understand and appreciate who God is and to see the larger promise that God promises. Yes, the reality of Psalm 2 still stands. God will give his royal son to the nations. Yes, he will get the inheritance and other most parts of the earth as his possession. Yes, his dominion will be from one sea to another, from the great river to the ends of the earth. But it helps you to see the complexity of intersection between God's time and our time, the flaws of the kingdom and the failures of human kings and the glory of the coming kingdom of God. And it shows how Jesus transcends those earthly kings. And it shows us that we stand in that tension ourselves, that things are the way they are because of our mistakes, vulnerability, bad things that happen to us. And still God is the king and still he uses us and promises eschatological fulfillment in the future that we don't see being realized today in our lives. Can you see the value of Psalm 22, Michael? Well, in some respects, I can relate to it. I don't know anybody that has an easy path through life and everything goes their way. You know, we have problems and difficulties. Oftentimes, when they're least expected, things go terribly awry. And not because we've done anything wrong. It's just the happenstance of life. And it's easy to, in that kind of a circumstance, think, why are you doing this to me? You know, I've been trying to lead a pretty good life, but you're oppressing me rather than helping me. And I think that's a natural human proclivity. Excellent. But you can see that David did not sit down and said, oh, I have written all these Psalms, but I have provided nothing for the future Messiah so that he can have something to quote on the cross. So let me write down another Psalm for Jesus to have something to quote. No, he describes his own situation. And in that situation, Jesus finds something meaningful when he feels that God has forsaken him and that his Abba Father does not respond to him the way he would prefer. And all of us can relate to that. All right, let's go to Tuesday lesson, Psalm 89. Why are these Psalms important? One to four. I will sing of your steadfast love, O Lord, forever. With my mouth, I will proclaim your faithfulness to all generations. I declare that your steadfast love is established forever. Your faithfulness is as firm as the heavens. You said... I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to my servant David. I will establish your descendants forever and build your throne for all generations. Yes. So everything great and wonderful. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Let us rejoice. Verse 19 to 21. Then you spoke in a vision to your faithful one and said, I have set the crown on one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found my servant David. With my holy oil, I have anointed him. My hand shall always remain with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. Excellent. So everything is wonderful. Let's go to 26 to 29. He shall cry to me. You are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. 
I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Forever I will keep my steadfast love for him, and my covenant with him will stand firm. I will establish his line forever and his throne as long as the heavens endure. And let's go to 34 to 37. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once and for all, I have sworn by my holiness. I will not lie to David. His line shall continue forever and his throne endure before me like the sun. It shall be established forever like the moon and enduring witness in the skies. And everybody said, Amen. This is our king. Hallelujah. So, without warning, let's read verse 38. Next verse, 38 to 40. But now you have spurned and rejected him. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have broken through all his walls. You have laid his strongholds in ruins. And verse 44 and 45. You have removed the scepter from his hand and hurled his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. Do you see what's going on? In the first 37 verses, the psalmist is recounting the promises, trustworthy promises of the past and reminds God to remember those promises. And then he approaches suddenly the terror of the present. And he doesn't say that an enemy has done this. He doesn't even say some other God is responsible for it, for what has happened. He says, no, you have done it. You have rejected David. You have renounced your covenant. You have exalted his enemies. And what's the conclusion? Verses 46, the end. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what vanity you have created all mortals. Who can live and never see death? Who can escape the power of Sheol? Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, O Lord, how your servant is taunted, how I bear in my bosom the insults of the peoples, with which your enemies taunt, O Lord, with which they taunted the footsteps of your anointed. And that's it. And that's the end of the psalm. Can you see how it ends? On what note? And by the way, can you see why after the exile, they add verse 52, blessed be the Lord forever, amen and amen, because somehow... This Psalm 89 is the end of book three of the five books of Psalms. And they decide that book three needs a more appropriate, solid final note than just remember, Lord, how your servant is taunted, how I bear in my bosom the insults of the peoples with which your enemies taunt, O God, which they taunted the footsteps of your anointed. Full stop. Period. Not a high note to end the Psalm on. So why do you need to read prayers like this? What's the value of Psalm 89? Who is responsible for all these bad things that happened according to Psalm 89? And by the way, Psalm 88, but they didn't even put it in the lesson because that's the darkest Psalm of all. So from verse 38, who is responsible for that? Circumstances? Bad luck? Powerful pagan gods? Michael? God's responsible for it. That's right. 
you. And the same you that he reminds and asks to remember the covenant, the same you, God, is the one who is responsible. And why is this important? Because this is his way of holding on to his God in the darkness. Rita. He's blaming God. He's saying, you have done all of this. Um, you've rejected. But I think maybe a value of these prayers being written down and us reading them is as a kind of reflection. You write all of these good things down and then that was in the past. This is what you said. This is what you've done. And now we're in this position. You've done this. But it should be making us ask the question, but why? What has gone wrong? And what needs to be put right? And how long are you going to leave us in this position? Again, putting the blame on God rather than looking in on themselves, but it should be making us look in on ourselves. But can you see how putting the blame on God, how the same you, who is the one who came up with these promises, is the you who went back on your promises and abandoned his people, how this is a way of holding on to God and continuing to worship without pretense, with our eyes wide open to the terrible reality. And that's exactly what poetry can do to link the present to the past, to say, remember, and to say, blessed be God, even when the tide is running strongly in the wrong direction, and you don't see those blessings. Bob Ziprick? Historically, what period of his life are we talking about here? Are we talking about when he was fleeing from Saul, his father-in-law, or are we talking about something later when Absalom was revolting? Because he actually stayed king his whole life once he was inaugurated as king. So I was trying to figure the context, or do we not really know? But Psalm 89 is a psalm of Ethan, the Ezraite. So yeah. this is the exile, time of exile. This is not David. Okay, so this is much later. Yes. Okay, I was yes. trying to figure out if this was really in any way connected to him, so it's not. And that's why he says... Remember, Lord, you promised that the son of David is going to sit on the throne. You promised that all these kingdoms will be his inheritance. And now this is what's going on in our lives. Of course, the kingdom split into two. So if you go to the history, there was a revolt after Solomon died, right? So, yes. So it was kind of a messy history. <laughs> but this is the time after Ezra. Michael Bell? It avoids any introspection. That I have anything to do with causing the problems and difficulties in my life. It's God did this to me. I was leading a good life until you louse it all up with all this oppression. And it's easy to fall into that kind of trap. When things are going good, no, I things are one God has blessed me. But when things start going sour, you know, why is God doing this to me? And that's pretty much what I think that is going on in this psalm. Thank you, Chris. And now you can see in today's society where everything's about being a victim. In fact, you are praised for trying to find the new thing to be a victim. And you look at how that's destroying our country. And you see this in Psalm 89, this whole victimhood type of ideology versus saying, you know what, I take full responsibility. I messed up. And sin pays its wage wholeheartedly, and the consequences are very natural. And so this whole concept, actually, the founders of America, when they talked about the fact that a moral society is the only way you can have true freedom, this is exactly in the Bible. 
the only way that society can function in the long term is to have people who are moral and immoral people will eventually self-destruct. And so I actually see that as one of the lessons from Psalm 89. Thank you. Well said. Can you see how it speaks about God's faithfulness to his covenant and how the psalmist insists that God will remind himself of the larger story? Go back, see where it all started, what you promised, and then look ahead and remember where the story will end. And the psalmist says, and when we stand in perplexity at the intersection of the past, the present, and the future, so you, God, will remember how short is our time, verse 47. You will remember your steadfast love of old, verse 49. And you will remember what the enemies have done, verses 50 to 51. Just remember. So he connects the past, the present, and the future. And the only way to be sustained in the dark present is to remember the past and to look into the future. If you look at under number eight, these psalms help us to look back to the great moments of the past and see God's mighty acts, but they function as evidence in reframing the pain and the puzzlement of the present. And if you do that, it invites you to live within the hope and assurance that God one day will create a different future because he's faithful to his covenant and you need to see the larger story. And that's why this remember is so important. All right, let's go to the kingly psalms about God's power that has no rivalry. We have read Psalm 2 already, so let's go to Psalm 110, verses 1 and 2. The last two sections speak about eternal king of unrivaled power, and then also we'll have the image of the priest in Psalm 110. So 110 verses 1 and 2. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends out from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your foes. And we read in Psalm 2, Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So what sense do you make of these? Psalms, like Psalm 2, 18, 20, 21, the Majestic 72, the short Psalm 110. Let's read verse 5 and 6 also. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations. Filling them with corpses, he will shatter heads over the wide earth. And everybody said, Amen. Hallelujah. So what do you make with these royal, violent psalms speaking about who God is? Why is this part of the inspired poetry and the book of Psalms? Michael? Well, it certainly reveals the power of God, immense power. But it also shows vengeance, which I find puzzling. Mm -hmm. And the puzzling is that God would react or respond in this way. That's what you find puzzling. Yes. You don't yes. find puzzling that somebody living in 1000 BC thinks like this about God. Oh, no. That's... He, ob he observes the kings of the day and he then projects. And if these powerful kings behave like this, how much more God would act in a similar way? I agree with that. At that time and that 
if I'm blessed, if I own 100 sheep and I have five daughters who've been married off well, that shows that God loves me and blesses me immensely because I must be very special. Yes. And if the enemies come and rape your wife and kill your children and steal your sheep, then you cry, God, where are you? Do to them what they did to me. Yes. Yeah. Rita? I think that this time in history, only that kind of language could they understand because that's what they were familiar with. If God had said at that particular time that you're going to be a king who's not going to raise a sword and you're not going to head an army, they have said, what? We don't want you as a king. I you beg your pardon? At all. So they had to see God in that way. Otherwise, they wouldn't have even stayed allied to God. Remember, the greatest hero of David's army wasn't somebody who gave 300 Bible studies or somebody who baptized 300 souls. It was somebody who chopped off 300 heads and so much so that when he went to bed at night, he had such a spasm that he could not release the sword. So he had to sleep with the sword in his bed because of this chopping of heads. So that was the greatest hero. They wrote it in the Bible. It's something to be remembered. And then you read in Psalm 72, 17, May his name endure forever, his fame continue as long as the sun. May all nations be blessed in him. May they pronounce him happy. So can you see how in our democratic age, when we read about these violent royal psalms and ascribing it to God, and consider that as extraordinary exaltation for God as the king, we say, I beg your pardon, what's that? But the problem is not that God is like that. The problem is that you took majority voice as the reality, that you took poetry as the reality. Yes, these Psalms, speaking about God's power, have been abused to justify tyranny and wickedness, just as soft and meditative Psalms have been abused to justify quietistic escape from God's world just as penitential psalms have been abused to justify endless over-scrupulous navel-gazing, as the celebration of creation psalms have been used to express soggy romantic pantheism, but it's part of the picture how they in poetry express who God is in the language of the day. And what they do is they connect the past, the present, and the future. Which means that those of us who live in California and Europe and Papua New Guinea and Africa and wherever people are listening to Pino in 2023 or end of February and March 24, how do we express who God is and our trust and our reliance on him when times are difficult, confusing, and when things that have been stable in the past and clear in the past are not so anymore? Because that's exactly what they go through. Tim? It doesn't seem surprising that a king a thousand years before Christ would see God this way. It does seem a little surprising that so many Christians continue to see him that way today. Do you think that's perhaps a misreading, a misunderstanding of the book of Revelation or perhaps other explanations? Yes, definitely. So you find what you seek. And if you don't learn how to read different genres of the Bible, that's what you end up with. And if you worship raw power, then you find those pictures of raw power incredibly encouraging and heartwarming. If you long for vengeance, then the fact that God will provide the vengeance and this language can 
incredibly comforting to you. But you might think that after what we learned of God in Christ, that people might see that the two pictures are incongruous. And apparently that's not the case. Wouldn't you expect that after what people see in Exodus, that God releases them because he hates slavery? They would stay away from slavery as long as they live and not abuse another human being? No, they use slaves to build the temple for the glory of God who hates slavery so that they can better worship him. I mean, that's human nature. In 19th century, they are going to argue that if Paul mentions slavery, slavery is going to stay until the second coming. And today we look at them and say, hmm, they were children of their time. They were children of their time. And if Jesus doesn't come very soon, our children and grandchildren are going to look at us and say, really, you discussed this? You could not agree on this one? And this was a fighting item for you? They were children of their time. But the inspiring thing here is how the psalmists cling to the faithfulness of God and they see the future as a triumph of God in the language and culture of their time, just as we need to do that in the light of the path that shines on our journey. Michael? One of the themes I see in this is this notion of being a victim, a martyr. I'm oppressed. I'm this and that. And unfortunately, it's part of human nature. I see it going on in our country today. Those who think that they've been oppressed and failing to see the bounty of this country. But if you're going to make yourself a victim, you're never going to grow. You have to get beyond it. I think everyone has got their own trials and tribulations they've had to bear in their lives, whatever they might be. And it's triumph over them and trying to lead a decent life, which I think is what God is calling us to do. And that's a wonderful goal in and of itself. Thank you. So can you see, if you want to understand this, you need to step back and see that God created humans in the beginning to be partners in ruling the world. That's why they are created in God's image, so that they together express and model God's wise and caring love of this world and bring order and fruitfulness to the project where they are. And when things go wrong, God does not abandon this. But once again, they are partners in what God is doing, in spite of the fact that they are not perfect, that they mess up, that they misunderstand God. And God calls us not only to take care and look after the creation, but also to be the means of rescuing the world, in spite of the fact that we are not perfect, that we need rescuing ourselves. And so the kings which are not perfect are still model of what God is doing. Now, if you want to know how God rules the world, don't read the outbursts of the Psalms. If you look under number six, written in the language and idiom of that time, look how Jesus presented the model of who God is and how he rules. And you will see that these are just poetic attempts to express the conviction that God will ultimately establish his rule on the earth, that he will be the coming king, that he has not abandoned the project. When they say, what is the man that you are mindful of him, that you visit him, that you still count on him and make him part of this bigger story, part of this project, you will appreciate that it's a way of expressing, God, you will remember the bigger story, and I want to remember it too. 
when times are difficult, when situation is dark, I rely on your remembrance on the bigger story. All right, and let's go back to Psalm 110, Psalm 110, verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So, what is ultimately going to change the world? What is ultimately going to bring God's kingdom, God's rulership? Notice, the Lord has sworn. Hebrew says he's not like a human being, so that his word would not be valid. Remember Jesus said, when you say yes, it should mean yes. If you say no, it should mean no. But Hebrew says, God stoops down so much to our level that he says, and so that you know that I mean it, I am going to add an oath to it so that I am not going to backtrack my word. Because in this world, if it helps me, my family, my tribe, then I can retract my word as long as my tribe benefits from this. And Bob and Michael would be without job because people will break word, break faith, and as long as I benefit, that's okay. And that's why the Bible says, and God stoops down to our level and says, I am even going to add an oath to this. God has sworn and he will not change his mind. That's the security that it brings. Remember the previous lesson, how the psalmist can go bananas for 176 verses to say how glad I am that I live in a universe where the law is the most important element where there is a rule of the law. Why? Because it brings security and stability to my world. And God is not going to change his mind. And what is it? You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Kingship alone, kingly rule, is not going to solve the problem. People need not only a Davidic powerful king. How does it say? Eternal king of unrivaled power. They need something else. And what is it? They need a priest. And what is a priest? Priest is the one who mediates to you the knowledge of who God is. And so an obscure image from the book of Genesis of Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, who was the king of Salem, Yerushalayim, the king of peace and righteousness, and a priest at the same time, is going to be the image that the New Testament is going to use. And it says, yes, before Jesus comes as a king at the second coming and establishes his eternal kingdom, and the nations are destroyed like the potter's vessel by the glory of his appearance, so that it does not appear like a vengeance. Let me punish you for daring to stand up against me, so that God is not a celestial King Jong-ul or some other autocratic rulers that we will not name. Let me tell you something about the priestly function. Before he comes as a king, he needs to function as a priest. And what is the role of the priest? To reconcile, to transform, to mediate the knowledge of who God is. And so Jesus is not only the king in the line of David, he is also the priest. And after he died as a sacrifice, he ascended to heaven. He's in the heavenly sanctuary, functioning as a priest. And what's that? He mediates the knowledge of who God is, what he's after, and how he exercises his rule today to us. And that's why you need to pay attention to the minority voice of the New Testament. 
because if you stay with the majority voice of the poetic psalms or Old Testament authors, it almost guarantees you are going to misunderstand the nature of kingdom, who God is, how he runs his universe, how he runs his kingdom, and how he will achieve his goals. For that, you need to have the eternal priest in the order of constructing a city where peace, shalom, and righteousness reigns forever. And for that, you need to read the Gospels and the New Testament. Can you see the value of Psalms and the poetic inspired books? When people struggle, certain things are difficult to express in prose, are difficult to express in philosophical language, conceptualized truths. You need music, you need poetry, so that you can somehow connect the intense pain, intense joy, the frustration, and the hope that we experience. But then connecting the past, the mighty acts of God, helps you to refrain the pain and the puzzlement of the present and gives you the assurance there is a hope in the future because God will remember how it all started and what he wants to accomplish. And one day he will put the whole world right. The past, the present, and the future all belong to God. And Psalms help us to struggle with this living in that complex situation where the past, present, and the future meet. And sometimes you are up and sometimes you are down. Sometimes you are in the darkness of depression and desperation. And sometimes you are joyful and hopeful. But when you connect the story with God, who is above it all, there is a future. And this poetry can be helpful to give you a different perspective that the cerebral understanding of propositional truth would struggle to marry and to reconcile. Let's pray. Dear Lord, all of us go through different experiences in life. Sometimes we feel like singing that you are the king of the universe and you are on your throne. Everything is smooth and wonderful and the way we want it. And sometimes we are so desperate that we tend to blame you for the situation in which we find ourselves, which is dark and depressive, where you don't see any outcome in the future. Help us, like the psalmists, to struggle well and to bring you into our struggles and to remember that we are part of the bigger story. When we cannot make sense of it, when we rejoice, when we are desperate, and when, when we are hopeful. And thank you that you will find a way to bring it to a glorious conclusion and that each one of us can be part of that. Help us to portray this image to the desperate world in which we live. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.